welcome to Podcast Sans Frontiers, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. Listen up. For us, there is no victory. But in revolution, doesn't one triumph or die? We don't do either. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Hi, I'm Brian. Today's episode is An Army Without Borders, our introductory episode to 2010's Metal Gear Solid, Peace Walker. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes, we know who Meryl marries, we know the fate of Master Kazuhira Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. So let's get started with Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker by chat and its production history. Leading up to E3 2009, Konami teased the release of new games via a countdown on their website. This would lead to dual announcements on back-to-back days. On June 1st, 2009, during the Microsoft presentation at E3, Metal Gear Solid Rising was announced, a game starring Raiden. And then the following day at Sony's presser, Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker, featuring Big Boss for the PSP, was also announced. Most of the Metal Gear Solid 4 team would be coming back to work on this new Big Boss game, including Hideo Kojima, Yoji Shinkawa, and Shuyo Murata. The two games, in combination, were unofficially referred to as Metal Gear Solid 5 by the dev team, and please hold that thought, we will come back to it. The actual development on Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker and Rising goes back to 2006, back when Kojima Productions was wrapping up Metal Gear Solid Portable Ops. At the time, Kojima was expecting that this project would be handed off to other devs, though he would still be producing these games. If you recall, when we wrapped up Metal Gear Solid 4, we did highlight that the in-game references to the Metal Gear Solid series included two under-construction spaces referring to these two games. Kojima really wanted the game to be set in Costa Rica and surrounding countries, focusing on the proxy wars between East and West in 1970s Latin America. This subject matter eventually led him to take a more hands-on approach with Peace Walker's development, and in the end, it would be a full-blown Hideo Kojima game. Boy, is it. (laughs) As mentioned, Yoji Shinkawa would be back to do character and art designs, and those came to life in a new way in this PSP game. Ashley Wood, who did Shinkawa-esque graphic novel-style cutscenes for Portable Ops, would come back to do the same for Peace Walker. Instead of full-blown cinematics with the in-game engine like previous titles, Peace Walker, partially out of necessity, would tell much of its story through comic book-style panels and staging, though there are some traditional cutscenes in the game as well. And, in picking up the thread from Metal Gears 3 and 4, there would be interactivity and QTE mechanics within the 2D illustrated sequences. The primary composers behind Peace Walker would be Kazuma Genuchi, Nobuko Toda, and Akihiro Honda, departing from Harry Gregson Williams, who had been on the previous solid entries. Also gone would be the traditional themes and leitmotifs from Metal Gear Solids 3 and 4, as new music in full was designed for this game. The game's main theme song, Heaven's Divide, would be performed by Donna Burke, and as per our MO, will be our new outro song for our Peace Walker coverage. Donna Burke would also become a big part of MGSV, as her music and voice would be all over it, namely as the voice of your iDroid. The game features a couple other songs worth pointing out. The end credit music would be a cover of the song Sing, which was popularized in 1973 by The Carpenters. This version was performed by Cindy Asada. We'll get get that song into one of these episodes during our coverage as we're wont to do. And anyone who has played through the game's second ending and fought Metal Gear Z will recall a very upbeat J-pop song, Koi no Yokushiru Yoko, performed by Nana Mizuki, who is also the Japanese voice actor for Paz. 
I'm going to put a little bit of that one in here right now before we head into our next segment. I love you, From the get-go, despite it being a PSP game, Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker was always meant to be a mainline Metal Gear Solid game in a way that its PSP predecessor, Portable Ops, was not. The fact that Kojima actually wrote and directed this game is a big reason for it, and he supposedly wanted this game to be called Metal Gear Solid 5, as we mentioned in our discussion about the E3 announcement. Kojima even called Peace Walker the Metal Gear Solid 5 inside me. However, Konami executives didn't want to use a number designation for a game only available on handheld. Those numbered titles were designated for big console releases. But, and this is my own Manu headcanon here, but MGS Peace Walker is named MGSV in its own way, in the fact that the peace sign, the two spread fingers, forms a V, basically making it read as MGSV Walker. And I'll tweet this out if I'm not describing it well enough. But I don't think that's as headcanony as it sounds, as the V of MGSV is all over this game. We'll save a lot of this for the story, but characters like Hot Coleman will say V is for victory, or Paz will say V is for peace, alluding to the hand gesture thing I just said, and Snake is called Vic Boss, V-I-C, by several members of MSF throughout the game. I also don't think the evidence ends there. At GDC 2009, Kojima laid out the next generation of Metal Gear Solid, namely Peace Walker and Metal Gear Solid V, and how they were all part of the same vision for Big Boss's story. Kojima had begun building the Fox engine at this point, and what progress was made was taken over to the PSP for this entry. Joran Lee, aka Futurasound, has a great video detailing all of what I just said, called Is Metal Gear Solid 5 Three Games? Peace Walker, Ground Zeroes, and The Phantom Pain, he contests, are three parts of the same concept. And it's not that the game just has hidden Bs and Fives in it, but that the game design, story, and cast are all congruent in a way previous entries weren't in terms of carryover. But all in all, both in terms of how I think about this game, I won't speak for Brian, I do treat it as part of the MGSV trilogy of games as described above. Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker was released in Japan on April 29, 2010, though that was a bit delayed from its original launch date of March 18th. The game was originally scheduled for a North American release in May of 2010, but that would be pushed back as well, and would finally arrive in America on June 8th, with June 17th and 18th representing the European and UK release dates. For those keeping score at home, that makes Peace Walker the only title since MGS 98 to be released first in Japan. Both Japan and the US would have PSP bundles where the handheld console and game would come together, and various retailers offered special promotional items such as a replica headband. Critically, the game was widely regarded as very good to great. Metacritic had it at 89 out of 100, while a lot of places had it 9 plus out of 10 or even perfect scores at some places. Unfortunately, due to it being a PSP exclusive, sales did not really reach the heights they were hoping for, either in Japan or in the West. As of 2014, Peace Walker had sold 1.99 million copies on the PSP. For many people, including us, it was the Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker HD Edition re-release for the PS3 and 360 in 2011 that became our entry point for this story. 
resolution was bumped from 272p to 720p, up to 60 frames per second, with updating of textures and assets throughout the game, utilization of dual analog controls, and incorporation of trophies and achievements. The ability to transfer progress from PSP to the PS3 was also available through the transferring option. While Peace Walker HD launched in 2011, I don't think it was until about 2012 or even 2013 that I first played it, mostly because I just wasn't paying attention to this sort of thing back then. I wasn't playing much of anything at this point, in Uncharted or Assassin's Creed here or there, or maybe revisiting MGS2 or 3 on my legacy PS2 discs. But otherwise, I just wasn't playing many games and wasn't really keeping tabs on them either. However, when buzz around MGSV's production started picking up steam, I started to investigate a little further. I had read the Peace Walker wikis back in 2010 that detailed some of the story about Chico and Paz, but when I saw that they would be returning for MGSV and that the story would be a straight continuation from this game, I did the bare minimum and searched the the PlayStation Store and found the HD release there. Sadly, that wasn't the end of my fuck-ups. I didn't fully understand the game format and design, and showed no intellectual curiosity in trying to figure it out on my own or Googling it, so I only played through the game's first ending at the time, somehow completely missing that the game tells you there's more to come in Chapter 5. As it was, Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker still felt like a complete game through and through. I beat the Peace Walker mech at the end, had a tearful goodbye to the boss, again, and just kind of assumed I was done. It had checked all the boxes I was looking for, and I kind of forgot about it until a few years later when I learned there was a second ending, after seeing videos of Big Boss fighting Zeke, and I was like, where the hell is this from? I did eventually circle back and build my own Zeke and defeat it, so yeah, of all the Metal Gears in my life, this is the one I'm most embarrassed about not really grappling with in a way Metal Gear requires. I learned my lesson, though, and history would not repeat for the Phantom Pain. So I think this might be the uh, only Metal Gear I played before you, then, because I got it in 2012. I got the HD edition. I remember when it came out, and I was interested in it because I didn't have a PSP, and I had pretty much fully gotten into Metal Gear by that point because I I had beaten yeah by 2010 2011. I think I had beaten all the ones that I could get, so not four. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I played it. It was definitely it was in 2012 because it wasn't when my cousin was living with me, so it was in 2012 I beat it. And I, I, I kind of, I kind of bounced off it a couple of times, but I, I, within I think two or three months, I, I finished it and done everything. But I, I didn't do everything. I didn't hundred percent it, but I got through Zeke. I got through everything. I really enjoyed it. And then I just like didn't think about it for like six years. And then yeah, coming back to it later has been like, oh, this game is politically actually very much my speed. It's yeah, it's a great game. One of my favorites. I think it's probably going to be higher if at the end of this we do like a retroactive, like a re-ranking, it's probably going to be higher than I even had it before. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, My rankings after we do this series is going to be all over the place because I still think it holds, but each game we've covered um, has made me like the game more. I don't Mm. know if it makes it more than I've liked the other games, but um, this one was third on my list, I think. Um, so uh, we'll see, we'll see. But I think this game is great. And it's kind of a hard game to 100%, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's why I'm kind of sad I lost my progress on my PlayStation uh, Now uh, because it was delisted due to the Metal Gear Solid 2 and 3, um, what's it called, historical footage that was not renewed for its license. Um, because I was going to try and 100% it for this podcast because I had beaten everything. I just I basically had to S-rank the hardest missions near the end of the game 
which require you to, you know, kind of do some R&D to get some super OP weapons. And there's like date missions with Kaz mm. and Paz in the game um, that you unlock near the end that I haven't quite gotten to yet. I've seen it all, you know, on YouTube and various other places, but um, there's a lot in this game. And when we get to the game design, um, it's going to be a while for us to go over it all. And there's still stuff we're going to miss because there's just somehow a lot crammed into this game. I think it probably has the most, until V, it has the most, it, it still may have more content. I don't know. It's a lot. Uh, I think uh, V does have a lot more content, but we'll. I don't think it's, I'm not saying that in a way to put this down, because especially for a PSP game as designed, um, this game is just like overflowing with stuff you can do. Hmm. And a lot of what V does in terms of having more is just taking the concepts here and allowing you, you know, just building them out more. Uh, where something like Mother Base is just a menu-driven thing here. It becomes a whole thing in um, Phantom Pain. But it's not like it's new to the Phantom Pain, per se. As we do, we also like to run down games that released around Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker. And also, as we do, I only touch some of these games and very few extensively at that. I will list some of them here and then get out of the way for Brian to talk about the ones he played, as there are some big ones to discuss. I tried to limit them to games within five to six months of Peace Walker's release, so I avoided listing some of the late 2010 releases during the holiday season. You don't need to anyway. Uh, the biggest releases, and I'll just read them all off, and then Brian can pick and choose which ones he wants to talk about, are Super Mario Galaxy 2, Red Dead Redemption, Mass Effect 2, StarCraft 2, God of War 3, Super Street Fighter 4, Halo Reach, Bayonetta, Bioshock, and Assassin's Creed 2. Assassin's Creed 2 and Red Dead Redemption were the only ones that I specifically played at the time. Um, I did come back and play Bayonetta and Super Mario Galaxy 2 later. Um, Assassin's Creed 2, I'm not a huge Assassin's Creed person, but 2 was the only one I really liked from... That's the best one Yeah, that I played, yeah. I hear after, like, well, I don't know how it is now with the annualization or near annualization of it, but... Um, I feel like the pirate one or the sailing one was supposed to be good, but I feel like of all the games before it, two is generally considered the best. That's EO game. Yes. And I believe there was a trilogy formed around it too, like Brotherhood and stuff. The Diminishing Returns trilogy. Because the second one is 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 fine and the third one is bad. I played them all in like a in like a six week period, and that was really, really apparent playing them. Mm-hmm. Probably around the time I played this, honestly. It was sometime in 2011, 2012. That's when I played Skyward Sword. So it was definitely late 2011, early 2012. I don't know. That was kind of blur that whole like year and a half for other reasons mm-hmm. that I won't get into. Yeah, the only game I can think of for 2010, um, New Vegas, Fallout New Vegas was a big release, I would say. Alan Wake is a, is a game that I love, and it, it, was a, not a, it wasn't a small release, but it's not really a game... Remedy for good or ill don't really seem to be affected by the rest of the industry. They just kind of do, they're off doing their own thing in their weird little corner, little B-movie corner. Um, and then like, I think it was, it was the Yakuza 4 came out that year. Yakuza 4 must have, I'm sure there was a, one of the Call of Duties came out. Yeah, I tried to uh, limit like the late 2010 releases just because the holiday yeah, season would yeah, add like yeah. 30 more games to this. But yeah, it ca- there was a Call of Duty. Just Cause 2 came out that year. That was a good game. That, that game I'm only thinking of because it is set in a similarly in a uh, Latin. I don't. I think it's just like a. I think I think it's a fictional country, but it also has you fighting the CIA. So that was kind of a fun convergence. Limbo came out that year too, but Limbo is an indie game that kind of is its own kind of worm. So yeah, I mean, I would say mostly those are like the big games of 2010. I don't know. 2010 was one of those transitional years, kind of, or. It was the year that, that that generation started to wind down, so we got a lot of like big projects coming out. So Mass Effect 2 came out. That was really anticipated. The last bunch of Halo game came out, a sequel to Bioshock, RDR, Galaxy 2. And then the next year was like the blowout, like all the rest of the ideas that anyone had for that generation of games kind of came out in 2011. And the 2012 and 2013 were fine. Uh, yeah, probably around 2012 is when uh, a lot of uh, developers are probably start gearing up for the next gen uh, yeah. systems and start creating stuff. Well, because that, that's when you start getting. I would say 2010 and 2011 are sort of the the classic era of this generation is when it ends. Because then in 2012 you start getting a bunch of two disc games. Like The Last of Us somehow came out on a PS3. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So like you started getting stuff that like really was probably next gen. So this was kind of the end of this gen to me. That there's always a year or two that's like that. Like uh 
honestly, next year is probably the actual start of this gen that we're currently in. Because, like, we everything got delayed so much that we're just kind of... It, it still doesn't really feel like people are really taking advantage of the new... I mean, Halo Infinite, very, very a game that I liked quite a lot. I thought it was very good. It also came out on the Xbox One. Right, yeah. So, like, it's not like a... It's, it's not... It's, it's the Twilight Princess thing. Twilight Princess came out on the Wii and the GameCube. So it's not really a Wii game. Mm-hmm. No, I think there's a lot of stuff straddling um, the previous generation right now in 2021. Yeah. And I think it probably will linger just a little while longer, especially because we're a year out from like the PS5 release and it's still almost impossible to uh, find one these days. And obviously we're living under COVID, which um, slows down both development and then also, you know, shipping and logistics and all that. So well, specifically, it, slow, it slows down um, like chip design, like chip production. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is important. Very much so. Especially when it's the similar chipsets that are being used for like CPAP machines. So it's a little more important. And also just like people are losing their jobs or have to worry about other stuff. So yeah. I know game sales like jumped up a little bit at the like a couple months into the pandemic, but I don't know if that's held up or not. Um, you know, there's there's a lot going on that's affected the last couple of years in games and games development. go into the game systems and mechanics now, but Peace Walker signals a significant change in MGS's overall game format. MGS 1 through 3 are all basically singular missions, or two if you want to do Tanker Plant or Virtuous Mission Snake Eater, but they are very tightly linked. MGS 4 blew up that format to its most extreme end. It's a globe-trotting, several-week adventure, but it still fits into the same style of linear, big singular mission storytelling. Let me back up a bit, because there is a hardware tail wagging the game dog here. Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker is the first of the mainline Solid games that isn't made for a console, or sitting down at home for an extended playtime. In designing a game for a mobile platform, Kojima wanted to ensure that it can be enjoyed as such, on 5-minute train rides in Tokyo or wherever else. We've spent a lot of time talking about how Kojima maximizes every piece of the hardware he can, and the Sony PSP is no different. Peace Walker's main story gameplay, instead of being one larger mission where you can save along the way, is broken into smaller missions or episodes, usually beatable in three to five minutes, some shorter and some longer, of course. These episodes are fairly standard Metal Gear fare for the most part, infiltration, sneaking, with the occasional shootout and boss battle. In this game, the bosses are mechs and artillery. In addition to the main missions, there will be several extra ops or side missions as well, ranging from reusing story maps for extraction and recovery missions to target practice at Mother Base. Oh yeah, we'll get to Mother Base in the next section. Or sometimes it's just a mission with the difficulty ratcheted way up, which which should sound familiar to those who played The Phantom Pain. Earlier, I mentioned how Joran Lee had dubbed Peace Walker the first of the Walkman trilogy, and I do think the Sony Walkman is an instructive analog here. Episodes in this game are basically songs. You can replay them, record over them in terms of achieving better rankings and scores, you can unlock remixes or covers of existing episodes, and you can jump around them non-linearly, like fast-forwarding or rewinding a cassette tape. Which, quick aside, I do wonder how many of our listeners grew up listening and using cassette tapes like I did, or how many mostly know about them from these late solid titles or other pop culture media. Of course, the Walkman aspect isn't just an analogy. It's literal hardware Snake uses in this game, which carries on over into V. You'll be able to acquire music tapes to play on your missions, not unlike the iPod and Metal Gear Solid 4, and you'll also unlock audio cassette tapes of messages and conversations between characters. Story being told through these tapes will once again take center stage when we get to V. 
This is just another instance of making sure that both form and function in Kojima's games are in dialogue with one another, or in the meta sense, that the idea of the Walkman reverberates outward from being a story conceit to an organizing pr principle of this game. In reading Kojima's book, The Creative Gene, he writes an entire essay about the Walkman as changing his life, the ability to take the art important to you portable in a way it had never been prior to the 1970s. My, I was a slightly behind the Walkman generation, so I actually didn't have one. I probably would have had one if we had more money when I was a little kid, but I didn't actually. I got like a, a janky CD player in like 98. Mm-hmm. No, it was, it was like an off-brand. It was like a uh, Kroger Rand one or something. I had it for like seven years. I think it's the only one. It was crazy that it lasted that long. But so that was my first portable music player. I mean, it definitely did change. People don't, I still have probably 60 or 70 CDs just sitting. I don't want to get rid of them, but like, I don't know what to do with them. Uh, I, I have the same. And they're all from like the mid 90s. <laughs> my parents pulled this great uh, thing on me because I started listening to music uh, probably between like 93 and 97, like actually wanting to buy music. Um, and I was still like nine, 10 years old. So it's not like I had a job to buy stuff. So they, you know, I would go, we'd go to like Best Buy or Circuit City or whatever, Sam Goody. And it's like, mom, can I buy this cassette? And there'd be like, no, because, you know, cassettes are on their way out. We should really get the CD. And then I'd go and pick up the CD. It's like, well, the CD is too expensive. Because, um, you know, a CD back then would probably be 12 or $13 at a Best mm -hmm. Buy. Mm -hmm. And then places like Sam Goody would like jack it up to like 18 or $19. Oh, yeah. FYE was super expensive. I, I don't really understand how the specialty store was that expensive when I'm just buying like Radiohead or Green Day or two, like I'm not buying obscure stuff that they aren't producing in mass. Give me all of your spoon albums. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's uh, because they make money from that. So I never owned like cassettes of actual albums, but my parents did buy me blank uh, cassettes so I could record stuff off the radio. Um, and that would be like where I would get like Counting Crows. I remember getting Mr. Jones and Me. Um, I did actually take the the Friends theme song by the Rembrandts um, onto one of those blank cassettes. Um, I only mention this now because when we actually get specifically to Ground Zeroes, um, the way an audio cassette sounds when it's been constantly recorded over, like there's more static and sometimes um, like previous recording slip in behind whatever you're trying to record now, mm -hmm, actually mm -hmm. rears its head in some of those Paws and Chico tapes. And you can tell they've been reused or are covering up something that might be hidden underneath, which we'll do our best to dive into. But um, I think Kojima really explores everything he can with the Walkman in these games. And I kind of led into my next point, but when we get to V, we will see Kojima Productions play even more in the space of what is an audio cassette and how to tell a story therefrom. And specifically in The Phantom Pain, I'm going to lean on this as I forward my grand opus on game design and the game's broader themes about Forever War. I think what Kojima accomplishes in The Phantom Pain is up there with Metal Gear Solid 2 and the other great video games of this era, and I know that might be a bit of a hot take because a lot of people think The Phantom Pain is punting on a lot of the old-school Metal Gear narrative. But hopefully, nearly 40 episodes into this podcast, you realize we are going even deeper and Fulton extracting every last bit of narrative, theme, and character we can, which, hey, is probably a good segue into our next bit on the game's systems and mechanics. I do want to start with a bit of a caveat here. We are going to speak to this game in terms of its HD re-release. I know we don't usually do specific controller inputs, and we probably won't here, but the PSP did not have dual analog controls, so the way camera and movement worked is way different than the versions Brian and I played. As we've alluded, this game is not inherently structured as one long linear narrative that you have to play from beginning to end but rather a series of shorter missions broken up into chapters with five chapters in total plus a prologue. Those chapters are An Army Without Borders, that's the prologue, Chapter 1, A Country Without an Army, Chapter 2, The Phantom Hero, which, you know, 
Chapter 3, A Nation Reborn. Chapter 4, The Illusion of Peace. And finally, Chapter 5, Outer Heaven. When choosing a mission, you get to pick the character you want to play as. 99% of the time, this will be Naked Snake, Big Boss, and some missions will be restricted to Snake only. But there will also be missions, usually of the side variety, where you have to pick someone else besides Snake under the pretense that you are running a mission that supports Snake in the field, such as recovering important personnel or clearing a path for Snake in his mission. When you choose a character, you also get to choose your camo and loadout. The camo is similar to what we had in Snake Eater, but you only get to choose one camo per mission. Each camo will get a letter grade for different environments, such as A for jungle, C for ruins, B for urban, etc. Based on what sort of environments are part of the next mission, you choose what makes sense. And of course, naked is an option, but sadly, once again, it only means topless snake. In When you're actually playing the game as well, there will be a camo index percentage very similar to Metal Gear Solid 3 and 4. Later on in the game, you'll be able to develop additional outfits, namely the sneaking suit and the battle dress. The sneaking suit is pretty much above average camo index for all environments and will quiet your footfalls, as footsteps are once again audible in this game. But you will not be able to carry as many weapons or items. The battle dress is the opposite. You sacrifice stealth for better defense, and you'll be able to carry additional weaponry, making it ideal for big shootouts and the mech boss battles. The weapons and items you carry are called your loadout, a concept that will return for the Phantom Pain. Instead of a backpack like in MGS 3 and 4, in which you can cycle items and weapons in and out of, you will have to pick the gear you want prior to the mission, and that's basically immutable. In terms of weapons, that usually means you choose to carry a handgun or a single-handed weapon as well as a bigger weapon, whether that be a machine gun, sniper rifle, or rocket launcher. And the number of items and weapons may vary depending on what you're wearing, as we've just discussed with the sneaking and battle suits. Same restrictions apply for items, and you'll have to basically figure out what items are going to be required for each mission and load out accordingly. In previous MGS games, we saw some branded items like Calorie Mates or Regain Drinks, but the number of brands exploded in this game as you can get Doritos, Mountain Dew, or even Axe Body Spray, which can cure your health or boost your psyche. The story even kind of implies that these brands were developed by MSF and Big Boss, which LMAO. Gamer Fuel. (laughs) Snake needs his Gamer Fuel. They all live. Big Boss is a gamer. It is true. I'm like you. I thought it was weird when he turned around to the camera and said, I, I, I love playing video games just like you. Cause, give me my PSP so we can play Crisis Core. I don't know. It's weird. It's, it's strange. But it's, it's, a, it's a nice uh, prelude to the, uh, the, the piss stuff and, and the Mountain Dew stuff in Death Stranding, I guess. Yeah. The Monster yeah. Energy stuff, not Mountain Dew. Sorry, I, 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 I didn't mean to insult the highly detailed uh, 5,000p Monster Energy drink rendering in that game. It's so funny. Hopping to the gameplay itself, it is very similar to MGS4 functionally, though this game is basically the first version of what would become the Fox engine for MGSV. The crouch walk is your best friend once again, and your footfalls will be heard unless you tiptoe slowly or have the sneaking suit equipped. The biggest change here is that you are no longer able to crawl and snake along the ground. You can lie down flat to hide, but you can't move or shoot from this position. I am guessing this was just a decision the production team had to make in figuring out how to design this game for the PSP. CQC is back, and boy is it better than ever. The game doesn't have all the varied options as you do in MGS4, but using quick time events, you're able to chain CQC attacks against multiple enemies, allowing you to non-lethally clear a group of enemies in badass snake fashion. Snake no longer brandishes his knife during CQC, in small part due to this game being rated T for teen, but you do have a stun rod that you can use in its stead. Holdups are also back and much more prominent in this game, especially as it relates to the next gameplay feature we're going to talk about. Holdups have been part of MGS since 2, and in 3 and 4 was a way to non-lethally neutralize guards, at least until someone found them or an alert phase was triggered. If you hold up enemies in this game, they will instantly put up their hands and lay down on the ground, rendering them inert for the time. 
This is one of the best ways to progress through the game non-lethally, and also allows you to... Looks like that soldier's out cold. Try using Fulton Recovery on it. Fulton Extract Them, baby. From our very first podcast, we've talked about extracting via Fulton, of course. While we glimpsed the idea in MGS3, it now actively becomes part of the gameplay and building Mother Base. Guards that have been neutralized by a CQC, Tranquilizer, or Holdup can now be airlifted off the map. It both clears the map of that enemy, but also makes them a recruit for Militar Sans Frontiers. Enemy soldiers will have letter-graded abilities among several disciplines, such as R&D or combat, which will, make the, which will make certain enemies more desirable than others. You'll have to develop the Fulton equipment as you progress through the game, which will allow you to carry more, and some of the more difficult side missions will basically require you to Fulton troops away if you want to get an S rank. S rank, you say? What's that? Well now, after each mission, you will get a letter grade ranking, with S being the highest. The most important factors are the number of kills and alerts, and how quickly you complete the mission. In this game, you must defeat the stage non-lethally without alerts to get an S rank, which is not true for the Phantom Pain, where time is the most important factor, and there will be missions where you will have to use lethal force to get the S rank, but we'll save that for Metal Gear Solid V. The mission ranks are not just a matter of pride, but actively affect your R&D as well as what audio cassettes and missions you unlock. S ranking certain missions will unlock confidential documents, which will allow the player to start developing more powerful weapons and items over at Mother Base. We've already talked about how much of the cutscenes in this game are 2D graphic novel style renderings by Ashley Wood in the style of Yoji Shinkawa's art. But in picking up the meme of interactivity from MGS3 and 4 cutscenes, these sequences also require player interaction. There will be moments where you have to aim and shoot, such as when you save Amanda from a cipher drone early in the game. There will also be QTE CQC sequences, where you have to press the right button to counter enemy attacks. And this game's torture scene also occurs in one of these 2D sequences, where you'll have to spam the action button to resist Dr. Strangelove's torture, not unlike in the first two Metal Gear Solid games. Fultoning just really, really in a way that none of the other games really ever come close to, really incentivizes non-lethal play. Mm -hmm. Like, it's almost, it's very difficult to, to play this game without, like completely lethally. I'm still doing my usual uh, stealth, 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 and then if I get compromised and I can't escape, I'll kill. So I feel like that's how Snake would play it. He's obviously not a, a pure path pacifist, so he will fight if, if need be, but... Mm -hmm. Definitely saving the most brutal, like, all my explosives and most of my rounds for the, the robot fights, because I feel like, you know, who cares? The robots. And I think that's a key part of doing a lot of these robots. We mentioned this in our MGS4 wrap-up, but by doing unmanned weapons and mechs and stuff like that, um, he can still allow you to be, you know, use rocket launchers and grenades mm, without mm, having to sacrifice mm. lethality um, and your rankings for that. Which is good. I think it works so much better making you do non-lethal stuff. And it's funny that you said some of the, uh, the soldiers are more desirable than others. I mean, I don't think you could go more desirable than I will Fulton everyone. <laughs> Infinite Fultoning. Yeah. The I mean, the only time I've ever made any decisions is if I only had a couple left and there's like three guys to choose from them, then I'll scan, then I'll finally use the scanner thing and, and yeah, figure out who's, who's better for me to get. But like, I don't care really. It's really just, I just want to get as much, uh, as many, need as many men as possible. Says big boss. His common phrase, he always says, I need men. Well, this game actually does is a little more um, not confined to just men in terms of Fultoning. There yes. will be more women, uh, soldiers, and prisoners you can extract. I believe in the Phantom Pain, it's all pretty much men. Uh, but here, there will be men and women. And I, I agree with you. I usually just Fulton everyone. Um, I think like before I bust out the analyzer, I first prioritize prisoners who are not soldiers because mm -hmm. usually the prisoners have some kind of specialty um, or are higher levels than just your average soldier. And then uh, we'll talk about this further when we get you know through the game. But when you Fulton a soldier also affects how they will be. Um, like if you extract, if you try to Fulton extract them when you're in the middle of a firefight or alert phase, they'll be hostile when they return to mother base as opposed to if you trank them, you know, during a normal uh, playthrough and you're not in an alert phase. In between missions and story beats, you will have the chance to manage Mother Base, the operating location for Militar Sans Frontiers in the Caribbean. 
Mother Base looks roughly like the Big Shell, though you won't be able to interact with it directly like you do in The Phantom Pain. Everything related to Mother Base in this game is menu-driven, though it's a lot of fun all the same. It's basically roster management from a Madden game, which rip John Madden. Soldier management is the heart of it, as you'll have to assign roles and teams for all the personnel you acquire out in the field, usually by Fulton Extractin, though certain characters are recruited as part of the story. You will have the following departments you can assign personnel to. The combat unit, which generates GMP, or money. The R&D team, which creates new weapons and equipment and also repairs mechs and metal gear. The mess hall team raises morale, which raises the stats of all your soldiers. The medical team prevents and treats sickness, wounds, and PTSD in soldiers placed in the sick bay. And the intel team provides rear echelon support, such as resupply and fire missions. Those departments each have levels, and reaching certain levels will allow you to unlock new items and weapons that can be used by the player. For example, the mess hall team leveling up will allow you to create better food items for restoring health and psych during your missions. When new soldiers are acquired, they will usually go into the waiting room. From there, you can assign them to the team that's most appropriate, and some personnel will be better suited for specific teams. Major characters such as Amanda, Huey Emmerich, and Kaz Miller will all be available for assignment as well. Huey, for example, is perfect for your R&D team. There is also a sick bay and brig. The sick bay is reserved for any recovered soldiers who may have been injured or hurt during extraction, and the brig is for any hostile soldiers you recover, which happens if you Fulton them during an alert phase. We've talked a lot about R&D, so might as well explain that now. Weapons in this game are not found on maps anymore, not really. You will have to develop weapons in a system that's very similar to a skill tree. Beating certain missions, obtaining design specs, gaining ranks, R&D team level, and total GMP all factor into what items are available to unlock at a given time. I also should note that building new weapons and items takes some time, usually dependent mm. on number of missions played in between. There are also outer ops. Theaters in which you can deploy your combat unit to take on other forces, earning you GMP and other goodies. This doesn't just mean troops, but artillery and equipment as well. During the course of this game, you will find tanks, ATVs, and helicopters. Those vehicles can be out and out destroyed, but if you can subdue them non-lethally, which involves defeating some ground troops and neutralizing the pilots, you will be able to add them to your own forces. And that's not the only artillery shenanigans in this game. The boss battles, as they are, are against unmanned vehicles, not unlike, say, the Shagohod or the USS Enterprise. We will get into those mechs during our coverage of the game proper, but these battles ape Monster Hunter, where you can target certain parts of their bodies, which you can then recover to build your own Metal Gear. Metal Gear Zeke, to be exact. Again, we will get there, as it's all part of the story, but hopefully you are starting to grasp how much is in this game, especially brand new systems. And honestly, this summary so far is nowhere near exhaustive. All the items we've hit on so far go much deeper with certain strategies and unlockables and hidden functionality. There's even a whole co-op mode that I've never even utilized, but me and Brian may try it out for this game. As we progress through it, we'll try to deepen your understanding of all these systems. Honestly, I enjoy all this mother base upkeep and development a whole heck of a lot, and even more so when we get to MGSV. We're technically halfway through. That's sort of the demarcating point now. I think a lot of the stuff we do now is going to be more systems-based. Like, mm -hmm. The games are more games than than plots at, from this point on. I agree with that. Because uh, I mentioned the Madden thing. Um, I gave up on sports games about 11 or 12 years ago. I think MLB The Show was probably the last one I was kind of regularly playing. But even at the tail end, I spent most of my time drafting teams and mm -hmm. doing like the front office stuff. Because, um, you know, you're not going to play 162 uh, baseball games to get through a regular season in that mode. Some people do. They're weird. Yeah. I mean, I usually like play the big series, especially because I'm usually the Cubs. So if we're playing the Cardinals or the Sox, I like to make sure I win those games. So I play them. But otherwise, yeah, I, I was really into like the fantasy roster management of mm -hmm. the sports games when I was winding down with them. And this kind of picked up that meme for me where I could do some of that. It's not quite a fantasy draft or roster management in the same way, but it's still just kind of that neat and tidy organizational stuff that, you know, gives my brain reason to release endorphins, basically. Yeah. Yeah. 
Pass. Peace. No kidding. That's my name too. Kazuhira. It's Japanese for peace. We can wrap up our introductory episode on Peace Walker like we generally do, laying out this game's organizing principle. Peace, as it were, following up on the gene, meme, scene, and sense from the prior four games. Maybe more so than any other of the series, the word and concept is explicitly evoked constantly throughout the story and even in the game's title. If you do not hit start on the game's main menu, it will eventually fade to black and show you this quote from Immanuel Kant. Peace amongst men living alongside one another is not a natural state. On the contrary, the natural state of man is that of war. War manifested not only by open hostilities, but also by the constant threat of hostility. Peace, therefore, is a state that must be established by law. Sorry, I made myself laugh by thinking... Well, mean gene scene. What it's a shame he didn't go with peen for this game to oh. give big to give big boss what he wants with all those men. I was thinking it's a shame that he didn't just do the theme of Okerland so it could be meme gene Okerland, but uh Gene Mean. <laughs> Fuck it, says Solid Snake. Um we know what's going on with Kaz in this game. We know who he marries. Mm-hmm. They basically become an they're basically an old married couple in, in V. Yeah. Like it, it's great. And even even here, you start seeing that. And there's a reason there's an extra ops side mission date with Kaz in this game. Mm-hmm. And we will talk about the homoeroticism of this game. Uh, our friend Cassie, who we read a letter from to open MGS4, uh, she had sent me an article written about Peace Walker and the homoeroticism of it that I'm sure we will get to during our coverage. This game's scene takes us back to the Cold War, specifically 1974. The U.S. and USSR were still hot cold-warring, though the arms race was not the only concern. Through their proxies, the CIA and KGB were waging war globally, including in Central America where this game takes place. This setting gives Kojima and his team a lot of space to develop this peace theme. Given the times, Kojima is able to refocus on nuclear weapons, picking up that meme after it was somewhat lessened in Guns of the Patriots. But now that theme can be evolved to discuss mutually assured destruction, a concept briefly glanced in MGS3. It's no longer an arms race, but a prisoner's dilemma, and the characters in this game are intent on poking holes in the superpower's decision-making matrix as it pertains to deploying their nuclear arsenals. Like in Snake Eater, the fate of the Earth is balanced on the edge of a knife, falter but a little, and the whole world will fall to nuclear shadow. Hot Coldman, Huey Emmerich, and Dr. Strangelove's goals are all to develop an AI to manage nuclear retaliation, the perfect decision-maker in the face of a nuclear crisis, and we will explore that as it comes up in the main story. All of this, of course, will interrogate the very concept of peace. If we all live just a few button pushes away from complete annihilation, is that peace? It's the whole absence of conflict versus presence of justice idea scaled up to global catastrophe. This very much cuts to the heart of the Cold War and can be tied to the whole war is peace concept from George Orwell's 1984, which is a major touchstone for Kojima. It's no mistake that the Phantom Pain is set in 1984. But peace isn't just a lowercase p concept here. Two of our characters carry on the meme of peace in their names. Master Kazahira Miller, or Kaz as we'll actually get to know him, his name comes from the Japanese word for peace. And though Paz isn't her real name, that name too translates to peace in Spanish, and she's a student at the UN's University of Peace. Of course, both Kaz and Paz have hidden agendas in the end, those that act counter to their namesakes, which further feeds into that war is peace idea. Don't worry, we will get there. And I'll just end by hammering home something I've been on since MGS3. Peace, P-E-A-C-E, is a homophone for peace, P-I-E-C-E, or peace and pieces. I constantly refer to this fictional world as a broken world of snakes and metal gears, and the big boss games are very much about the pieces the world will be left in as he wars with Zero and Zero's proxies. It'll be left to Solid Snake and Otacon to put the pieces back together in the games we've already covered on this podcast.
that's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsoundsfrontiers at gmail.com and at podsandsfront on Twitter and Instagram. You can support Podcast Sans Frontiers and all my other projects at patreon.com slash manuclearbomb, which, hey, manuclearbomb, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering the Lord of the Rings over at my brother, my captain, my podcast. Um, I'm Brian. I'm a new man. I'm Brian Nuevo. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember to find a way when heavens divide. When heavens divide, I will see the choices within my hands. How can we ever protect and fight with our tiny souls? Let me shine. People don't, I still have probably 60 or 70 CDs just sitting. I don't want to get rid of them, but like, I don't know what to do with them. Uh, I I have the same and they're all from like the mid nineties. Yeah. A third, eye, like three third eye blind ones of lesser and lesser quality as they go on. Um, I think I have like a, uh, I definitely have an Incubus CD in there. Oh yeah. Uh, whatever the first one with, uh, I can't remember their name. Morning View is the one I definitely That's have. Mm-hmm. Probably Toxicity. No Doubt Tragic Kingdom. I think I still was getting them when I was getting into Radiohead, like 2005 or six. So I think I think I did for like 10 years, I was collecting CDs. And then by the late 2000s, it was like, oh, iPod. Yeah. I think by 2008, 2009 is probably the last time I was buying physical music. And I probably didn't need to because I, you know, through college and high school, torrented and stole a ton of music. I know, I know for a fact that I bought 808s and Heartbreak. That might have been the last CD I bought. Oh, that, that actually might also be mine as well. Um, I know I definitely bought graduation, but I can't remember if I actually bought 808s or if I, you know, found it some other way. No, somebody had watched the throne and I borrowed it for my my uh, car. But I definitely bought 808s because I had it. I remember buying it before I was going before I went to anthropology class and I had it in my bag the whole time. And I was like, oh, I don't break it. I want to listen to it when I drive home. <laughs>